Thanks for tuning in to Jin and Tantra. In this episode, we discuss some of Carl Jung's clinical observations and his sort of three pillars of a functioning self from his psychological viewpoint. Those three pillars being repression, self-esteem, and having the ability to do something good for others. We also discuss hierarchical organizational structure and being cut off from one's inner archetype. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jen and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail. Your spirit has been longing for. I want you to get together. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. Hey, fellow GNTers, those of us who like our spirituality with a twist. So we are back. Um, we wound up doing a kind of a deeper take on Jung. And as we were talking about off mic, Daniel, once you start with this dude, there's just no end. <laughs> you just can't get to the bottom. Um, but as you pointed out, Jung never gets old, I guess, right? That was the, right. that was the line, right? So um I'll hold these up to the mic for people who are sorry, I'll hold up to the camera for people who are uh, maybe listening to the podcast. It'll be a little bit different, but I did get my Jung in love book. Here it is. And my commitment the next week is to go through and take a deeper peek at this. I really wanted to go through and get a version of talking about him that wasn't just like an attack hit piece. So this was a more positive version or at least, yeah, I mean, not a hit piece. <laughs> right. Not just trashing the guy. I wanted to read something where you kind of looked at him from a more sympathetic point of view. And I'm interested. But full confession, I had to renew my Illinois acupuncture license. And so the project got slightly delayed <laughs> as I was learning some acupuncture CUs. Daniel and I are both in the last minutes of getting these things done by the 30th. Gotta do it. That was also something we talked about off mic. Oh, the man's a professional life. And when you want to sit around and talk about Jung. Mm hmm. You know, the other book that popped off the shelf to me, and I'll hold it up like to the camera a little bit, just to show that we're not even done with this dude, <laughs> even close, is uh, I was looking for other books yesterday on traditional Chinese medicine stuff in our in our uh, day jobs. And um, I found this thing called The Secret of the Golden Flower, which is an old Taoist alchemical treatise with a commentary by our boy C.G. Young down at the bottom. And I was like, yeah, we still got to do this stuff from this guy. Mm -hmm. So never ends, never ends with this guy. And, uh, you know, I realized, Daniel, we did the whole thing on the archetypes. So we, we never talked about archetypes and like Buddhist meditation and the idea of the yidams. No, we did not. The Buddhist, the Buddhist meditation uh, uh, figures, right? Visualization figures that are very archetypal too. So that's another one we got to do, but we can't do all that. We got to move oh. along. Well, we had a couple of last things we wanted to talk about specifically with Jung. 
But I'm, I, yeah, I know how you feel about this, Daniel. I'm glad we're doing this with all of these different little psych figures, whether it's Esther Perel or Wilhelm Reich or uh, even Freud, and especially with Jung, because I think what you can learn from these people is a lot. Mm. There's a lot to learn from all of them. I think, especially Jung. Do you feel about the same way? Yeah, from yeah, and and I feel like there's so much of like of Jung's work that influences the culture and thinking today, and people probably don't even realize it actually. I was trying to figure that out. Like, to what extent is this stuff still super meaningful to people? And to what extent is this stuff sort of like dead? I can't tell. It's a complicated question. You know what I mean? I think it depends on who you're talking to, obviously, right? It's your audience. I don't yeah. I don't know that, you know, culturally, I don't think it ever has been quote unquote popular, right? In a sense, it's not the case, right? Right. And so you're, you know, but I think the people who, you know, have some experience with meditation or interested in doing some self-study you're gonna run across this stuff because it's the kind of the newest take at least in my opinion a newer take on the link between energy and psychology yeah yeah it's something that came up in our interview with uh bobby t robert thurman mm -hmm. we did like for me back in my 20s it seemed like there was a little heyday of this kind of thinking mm. you know and then i don't think it stuck in the end you know, I think there was a kind of uh, a weird Jungian themed optimism or something in some funny way throughout that little period of time. And but I don't know if it fully like stayed around. So I don't know the answer to this. But anyways, that just it had occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But as far as him being like an important person that I think gives, you know, gives us all a lot to think about. Right. And in, in so many different ways. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that he observed from his professional clinical life. So for the clinical folks out there, right. And right. Our TCM field and maybe in other fields that are connected to clinical stuff, he makes this really interesting observation. I wanted to throw it off you, Daniel, to see what you think. Sure. And then I think it implies something about maybe what something that we can all learn about how he saw where human beings could have different sets of issues and gives you some idea of what you could possibly work through. So, okay, back in the day for me, I first got introduced to Jung when I was in the campus of University of Chicago back in my undergrad days. And there was this kind of collections of Jung's writings along with these other important psychologists that were being covered for that class. Um, and so I'm kind of grateful for it in so many ways because it opened my eyes to psychology and an important person, my important part, part of my life, an important period of my life. But that some of the choices were really good and maybe not the main things that people would always think about reading. But from a clinical point of view, this little essay from Jung's that I'm going to be referencing here is pretty fascinating. So what he basically says is, you know, in my clinical life, I decided there were three types of patients, which is basically saying there were like three types of issues that people were facing. Or maybe you could say even bigger, like we all face three types of issues from mm -hmm. his point of view. So it gives you something really to think about and talk about with this. So we said the first type of people he saw were people who had like what he thought were real Freud problems. And I think you could look at that in a couple different ways. You could look at it from the point of view of people repressing. I think the main thing I would emphasize here is the idea of people repressing things. Mm -hmm. Now, from a Freud point of view, like what we were talking about, a lot of that will be repression of things that are like sexual feelings, right? And some of those things might be aggressive and assertive feelings, but these kinds of feelings are being repressed. Okay, cool. But I thought for our conversation, because we've been talking talking so much about repression, that's been like the theme of our year, kind of, right? Mm -hmm. 
I thought, well, you know, that's even a bigger idea of like repression just as a general problem, right? Where people have had painful traumatic experiences, whether they involve sexuality or they involve whatever are part of part of life you want to be talking about family of origin or other things, right? Because obviously Freud's big on like what happens in your family. But regardless of what it is, I think we're talking about repression there. And that could be part of that stuff could be things that are just more generally traumatic, right? And the whole idea that you know, we're, we're both concerned with this. And I think our field in general is our TCM field, but the whole culture is concerned about this idea of repressed trauma or something, mm -hmm. which means people are repressing aspects of their emotions, their thoughts, their memories and their experiences, and it's affecting their behavior. So that's kind of the general gist of this. So I think you can cast that either like kind of narrow, if you just talk about it in terms of like the very narrow Freud things, but if you make it bigger, then you're capturing like a whole bunch of people. And I think the idea is that this is all stuff that would be in the personal unconscious, Okay. right? Your personal experiences. What do you think of that as an idea? No, I mean, we talked about that with, with Reich and I think it gets talked about quite a bit in, you know, TCM specifically people repressing their, you know, I think most of the time it's repressing anger or repressing expressions of anger, you know, or, yeah. something, you know, irritability, frustration, inability to express oneself probably is, is what maybe that maybe, maybe that's even a better way of looking at it in my, in my, and how I talk about it with my patients. Cause sometimes I don't always want to focus on just the, the act, but like where the, what the act is attempting to do or not do this way, you kind of get you in the flow. So I'm like, okay, well, you want, you have a desire to express blank and you're unable to express blank because of the situation, because of culture, because of job, whatever the case is, right. You know, that like, then the, the, the sort of chokehold on that expression creates pressure back on, on either end of that thing. And then that's where you'll get, as we've talked about before, somatic, uh, responses, physical responses, psycho, emotional, mental kind of responses. So, yeah, I mean, to me, this is on on par with everything else that we have been talking about without knowing that we were going to talk about this today, actually. Yeah, like I wanted at the very end of all of this thing, once we're done with the whole big kit and caboodle, just to go back to that question of like what you could call like authenticity, mm. right? And the ability to express who you are. And I think the main psych person I wanted to talk about a little bit was Carl Rogers or something. Mm -hmm. at the end of the whole project though he's come up at different times here and there along the way right so that when you make it really big like you can't express you can't you're not able to express who you are you know then you're really talking about like kind of the biggest picture of this or something can you express who you are mm -hmm. otherwise what's being repressed is kind of like who you are and that right. can never turn out good <laughs> you can't repress who you are and like live through your life you're gonna have a hard time with that mm -hmm. no matter what mm-hmm and it's not good for your spirituality or really pretty much anything else. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. So I don't know. Jung doesn't talk that way. Exactly. Though I think he must think something like that, but he never says it in those exact words. And I think the whole Carl Rogers thing wasn't as much a part of his life or something like that. Jung's life. But like, I mean, he thinks something like this, but he never says exactly that, just to be honest. And like, see what the dude actually says. But he does seem to feel like, yeah, he's dealing with people who are kind of repressing stuff. And then some of that would have to do with, again, things that might be more specifically Freud things of sexuality and then other parts too. I was thinking about, I know you like uh, 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 Gaber Mate, right? Is it Gaber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gaber Mate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's talking about that in the context of almost like addiction therapy, but he's presenting it as a bigger thing. Yeah. Right. That people are really suffering from repressed stuff and it's like fucking their shit up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
the thing that gets me about that too, and I think that Jung understands this would be people could be repressing stuff from the past, that part of the personal unconscious. Or you could be repressing stuff that might be like in the immediate, almost like what you were talking about. You can't express what you want because of your job or we're mm -hmm. talking about relationships because of your relationship or because of your family or because of something else. Right. And your community of people, like there's something that you really want to be expressing, but you can't, which is right. part of this whole theme of this thing too. You know, how do you express who you are? Because it's hard to like psycho-spiritually develop if you can't express who you are. It's right. really hard, right? Yeah. All right, so that's one of the things he talks about. And I, I think, I know when that, as I was thinking about just as a general framing, I think that's pretty good. And that's like the personal unconscious stuff where you're repressing things that are more personal. Right. So he says some of his patients, he wouldn't even do his stuff. Like he wouldn't do Jungian psychology with them. He'd do Freud stuff with them, you know? And I thought, well, that's cool too, that he was flexible enough to recognize, you know, there's different kinds of patients and what I would like my model of what things are with this collective unconscious and the archetypes and all the stuff we've been talking about doesn't apply to everybody. Not everybody needs that. And right. I thought, you know, working in a clinical world, that's kind of fucking amazing that someone would be that honest and not have that clinical hubris. Right. My feeling is that most people have a, like a, a bigger ego about their stuff and they're not willing to say, Hey, you know, this other person's right about this point. I'm going to use their techniques for this. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. It's the inability to be flexible about our, about your means of intervention. Yeah. That ultimately, even if you're a, a skilled practitioner, like he was, or at least, you know, that's what we believe, um, mm -hmm. that your way is not the only way. And, and relating to people, I mean, and because I think you prioritize the sort of outcome for the patient. And if you have that in your mind, then you're not so dogmatic about your approach. You can be a little bit more freewheeling and, and whatnot. You can still, of course, have ideology and follow an algorithm of decision-making and so on and so forth, but not everything fits inside of a perfect box. And even when it does, it might be a different box than you're used to using. So in in, in his case, I think it it provides people who are looking for you know ways of getting things done an opportunity to be open to trying other things. It was weird when I first read this thing, I was in my, you know, my undergrad in my twenties, right. I wasn't a professional clinician yet in any way. Right. right. Had the idea. Okay. Maybe I'll go do psych stuff. Started to kick in at this point. I was moving from physics and I thought, this is cool. I like this psych stuff. Mm -hmm. So it kind of opened the door for me, but didn't have any clinical experience yet. And then I read this thing again, cause I was teaching a class on Jung and I was like, okay, I'm gonna read this thing that I hadn't read in decades. And I was like, oh my God, he's I'd forgotten about it on some level. And I was like, oh my God, he's like, not just pushing his own shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's flexible enough to realize that someone else has something worth saying and doing. Mm -hmm. And by that point, I had been around even in our funny little field, our little pond, and people have big egos, you know, and it's hard for people to say, hey, mine, you know, this other what this other person's saying is good, and I should do their stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> people won't do it. Mm -mm. you know and i had gotten to the point of thinking god that really is a human problem yeah doing clinical work everyone wants to like push their own their own stuff and a lot of it's probably ego driven right for sure i think that's fair to say and even in our little field i, I think it's fair to say in, in any field probably that, anything it's fair to say in anything yeah, yeah but any any field in particular that has a profession behind it you know if you have education if there is some kind of structure or hierarchy or 
licensure or something, you know, I think, you know, and I've, and I competition, maybe competition over. Well, I think any resources, money, and so on. I think any business is going to have some amount of competition, even. And so I was going to use the idea of people who will practice like Reiki or something like this, you know, or some other type of, you know, healing modality, the Mm -hmm. barrier to entry is lower, but actually the ability to stay in business is higher because you have to be very, very good at that because you're going to have a much smaller section of the population that's going to come to you on a regular basis. So if you could stay in business, it's inverted. Like if you're in business as a Reiki practitioner only, you must be really good. Like you must be really good because it's hard to imagine. Or like not to be cynical about any of that stuff, or you might just be a very good business person. Or you could be a good business person. It's still a talent. But yeah, yeah. So I, you know, having, having that idea of mm, people being competitive within the field seems to me like it's more easily felt when there's a hierarchy to get there, because then you can place yourself amongst the rungs on the way up. Right. So you can, you could learn Reiki in a weekend. Of course, you know, to be able to practice that professionally is going to take more time. Whereas studying acupuncture or chiropractic or what you know whatever medicine psychotherapy yeah it takes years you're nine years into the thing yeah you're sort of like shoved in this long line of people who are working step by step by step by step by step and so if you have some sort of ego-driven ideology and and not that it's always ego-driven i'm just saying it can be of you want to create a niche for yourself or you feel that what you have learned is is important enough that you can create a niche for yourself, then you can sort of start to siphon off out of this long line of people who are going towards the goal of graduation or whatever. You could sort of siphon off a line towards yourself. And then the more people that come, yes, of course, you might be good at what you do. Or like what you said, you could be a good business person you know, and market and sell it well. And then you'll get notoriety and that will just continue to boost you up. And then you believing that there's other good things might not be so easy because you've been successful at what you've done. It makes sense, but it is an issue. You know, like for Jung as a person, I mean, you have to acknowledge that he was independently wealthy through his marriage. So it wasn't like his whole finances were hinging, you know, Mm -hmm. even in someone like Freud, you get the feeling like he was, there was money issues involved in that, right? He didn't have, he didn't have the big money grip going, right? Right. Um, he wasn't. But on the other hand, rain. you know, he's a he's what's that? I said he wasn't making it rain. No, he was not. Yeah. Well, he was maybe in his own little way, <laughs> wherever the Viennese Viennese Deutschmarks or something partially came his way. But um, uh, but you know, still in the same, Jung is like pushing this set of ideas, and I just kind of respect the fact that he was like, okay, my ideas don't cover everybody. Right. I'm not the only game in town. There are people who have other issues and I can learn from other clinicians. I was like, I was retrospectively speaking, reading it again. I was like, oh, I respect that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But this dude is willing to do this. Okay. His other big idea is about what you might call like uh, self-esteem. Hmm. So the other big issue that he saw in people was, and that made him do different kinds of psychology. And he sort of said this with like another big psychological figure, Alfred Adler. Yeah. yeah, there's lots of schools of Adlerian psychology kind of floating yeah. around. The uh, campus that I teach on, that we met on, uh, you know, was a school of Adlerian psychology at some point, right? Mm. Yeah, they had all these nice little mugs when we first moved in that building, then everybody stole them all. <laughs> but they were pretty good mugs. I can't blame people for stealing them entirely. 
Uh, and then students, you're like, fuck it, I'm taking this. <laughs> <laughs> Student psychology. I paid for this fucking place. I'm taking this mug. But um, anyways, you know, Adler's whole thing was really about inferiority complex feelings. Mm. And the idea that people need to feel comfortable in their own self-esteem. And if you have these problems of feelings of inferiority or lack of self-esteem, then this undermines you in your life. And I think that's very true. So I think like reading this stuff from Jung again, later on after being a clinician, I was like, yep, this dude's right about this too. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes when you boil the issue down for a person, you're like, oh, this person feels bad about themselves. They have bad self-esteem. They feel, they feel that sense of inferiority, right? Mm -hmm. And and then the idea that Adler, uh, Adler, Adler adds to this is um, that you have to go through and you have to be able, on the one hand, to start to set goals for yourself and to start to have things that you're driving and pushing for, because that gives your life direction and meaning mm. when you feel like you're striving for things. And I think that's very wise, too. And as you go through and you start to accomplish things along your way, then your self-esteem will start to tend to start to rise. Right. You know, you'll meet obstacles and you'll realize that you can handle them as best as you can. You'll have successes and failures, but as you feel yourself going forward, you'll start to develop a certain sense of your own self-esteem, self-confidence. You'll overcome some of these inferiority like feelings. And like, I have no doubt that there's lots of people I've looked at clinically are like, yeah, this is the main problem. Mm-hmm. That's for sure the case. I was just going to say, this literally sounds like my practice. Oh, seriously? Absolutely. This is, uh, you know. A lot of like low SO, low self-opinions? Not necessarily that, but this idea of goal setting, accomplishing, like yeah. working. It's not always low self, but there, that's there's definitely parts of that. I think it, and I also think that that also we could talk about this from a Chinese medical perspective, repression can lead to that. The inability to go and like have a vision and go forward to set. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As the wood kind of works backwards. Right. Yeah. There's a funny kind of idea around this. There's like, like the, like talk it through between the two of us, but like, you know, Chinese medicine talks about these energetic phases, you know, like, you know, like probably a lot of people are familiar with this idea just in general, because it was in Greek stuff and all the earth and water and fire and all that. The Chinese have this idea of wood, right? And the wood kind of gives direction and drive to the personality. Even when they talk about the aspect of the spirit or the psyche associated with this, they call it the hun. But, you know, like gives you a vision, kind of gives you a direction of where you want to go. You know, that whole idea, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of what you're alluding to, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I find myself really working with, and I don't want to call it, I won't say low self-esteem, we'll call it empowerment, you know? helping people yeah. to feel empowered to frame it in a more pod positive way. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. To do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's important. And so there, thereby we are talking about things that we can accomplish and small wins that you can have on a regular basis and how that builds habit and habit builds willpower. And then we're, you know, we're able to move down these conversations. Your sense of yourself kind of naturally rises, doesn't it? Yeah. Don't you think that's true? Yeah, for right? sure. Cause you stop, you start saying, I don't know. And, and just saying I did, I can, yeah. you know, and like, though, it's not about the words though. It's about the feeling that where the words are coming from, you know, Plus the experiential feedback of that. I actually did this stuff. Yeah. Right. So you can't get to that like internal self doubt place of like, I didn't do this somehow. You talk yourself out of shit. 
No, and and the other thing you is know? that you you actually have to do the shit. You you can't just think I did it. You have to do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but in the doing it, very naturally, then your sense of yourself rises up. That's right. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Right. And it's not a cure all for everything, but man, it helps a lot. It really helps. But he's a lot. basically saying that's a percentage of people. Yeah. You know, some people have all this repressed stuff. Yes. Whatever that is that they're repressing. Another group of people, when you really boil it down, this is their main thing. Yeah. Right. So then the last point that Adler makes about this that Jung kind of talks about is this idea if you can't get to this place of feeling good about yourself and then feeling like you're doing kind of good, productive, also like things that are not just, and this gets to a little Buddhism too, not just things that are just good for yourself, but are like kind of good for other people around you too. So Adler has an idea that's almost a little bit, you know, we use this phrase like bodhisattva where you're working not just for yourself, but you're also helping the people in your life around you, maybe in your community, maybe even bigger than that, right? You're doing things that are that are of good in a very pragmatic way, you know? Mm -hmm. And he says, if that doesn't work out, then you can get like kind of bad personality types will get, will start to develop into that. And it's interesting the way he says it. He says, some people will get to be almost like dependent personality type people. He calls it leaning, but it's the same idea, you know? because you have a lack of sense of your own ability to, to accomplish your own things, then you just glom on other people. Right. Right. And then you're in this dependent mode and that's not psychologically healthy. I wonder though, just from my own the way that I look at things, I wonder if that, if your inability to give back in a way makes you feel more isolated mm -hmm. and thereby your, increase we'll call it neediness in this particular case increases because you want to be connected ultimately and if you don't feel like you can do it based off your own merit then you're going to have to get almost sympathy or some kind of maybe more negative attachment in order to fulfill that need for connection yeah you do it through like psychologically unhealthy routes or something yeah. right yeah but yeah. it's but it's 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 an antidote for the feeling of separation it's interesting because I don't know if at the time when these folks were doing their stuff initially, there was as much of a feeling. I'm sure they're lonely people. There's always been lonely people, right? The Beatles had the old song, all the lonely people, where do they all come from, right? Uh, Eleanor Rigby, right? Always been lonely folks. You always can write stories about lonely folks. But like now it seems like it's even more of a problem, right? Like yeah. there's these like, and you and uh, you did the episodes on like masculinity at times, right? Yeah. You know, some of the episodes you know, like you've done, we haven't had a chance to do that together yet. We plan to do that. We right? do. Yeah. Actually, my, I'm going to talk about that. One of the guests who came yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. We're starting a, our, our men's group is going to be opening up at the end of July. So we'll be, you know, popping into that. I mean, again, in the Esther Perel conversations we were having, you know, some dudes don't have any contact unless it's, you know, work or some other, you know, right. maybe they do a sport and they hang out with the people who they're doing the sport with, but otherwise their lives might be pretty, pretty lonely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's even another probably aspect of this, this idea of um, of not only being dependent upon others in an unhealthy way, but just not being able to get those connections, right? And really feeling socially isolated. Right. Yeah. And Jung and Adler definitely recognize like, okay, that's a problem, right? People feel socially isolated. You can talk about repression, and these other things, but like, you know, just that social isolation itself, right? It's probably connected to the other, he has two other things that can go wrong with this. So I'll throw them at you and you can tell me what you think. 
So he said, some people are more like this leaning dependent type, right? And they tend to get themselves involved in situations where they're having to like in unhealthy ways depend on others, right? Then the other part is like avoiding. So mm. some people get avoidance and maybe that's some of what's yeah. happening and some of what you're talking about too, because people don't feel good about themselves. And so they get avoidance and they kind of like go away from like social connections. They go away from from that part of things. And I think also the idea is they go away from sort of like challenging themselves, I think is part of this too. Well, they don't have confidence in their ability to do things. So they kind of take these kind of like avoidant routes. Yeah. I mean, that makes from a decision tree that makes sense, right? You have a severed connection. So, and the effort that you've put towards building that connection. Now you don't feel like you, you know how to do it. Right. So you, what yeah. I do doesn't matter. No one cares. It doesn't make a difference. So therefore, why try, which is the avoidance, or um, instead of me having to use my own energetic efforts to build community or be part of it, I'm going to try and extol it upon myself by becoming needy or whatever the case is, right? But you're using you're using a magnet at that point. You're kind of drawing it towards you. These you know, maybe in some way, these are like energy vampires, if you will, you know, people who just take a lot. I guess on like a subtle level, it can be people who are in like relationship and family things where they're afraid to be independently on their own. So mm -hmm. they kind of like are in these things. Mm -hmm. But maybe again, and with the idea of not really fully acknowledging that. Right. And then the avoidant part too, like you're, you're afraid of your ability to be in like, interpersonal relationships and handling them successfully. So you veer off in some other direction, right? Sure. You go some extreme route, you can talk about incels or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking that before, but it doesn't even have to be that extreme. It can be like, you know, in other subtle ways, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, it and could got... be, you're not exerting yourself. You don't put yourself out there. You don't take but risks. You would avoid a part of life or something because you're afraid yeah. of it somehow. Yeah. Right? You're just like, I can't do that. So, and you might not really fully being able to acknowledge that to yourself or something. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I, maybe I just personally find all that very interesting because I think there are those moments where you have clarity, where you can see to yourself, oh shit, I'm doing this thing. Right. But then you lose it. Right. You have those moments of like, yeah, I probably am being avoidant in this part of things as I don't know if I feel my full confidence in this area or something. Mm -hmm. Just as an example of that one. And then you realize, eh, you know, you recognize that, but then the next day you forget about it. <laughs> you forget about the fact that you realize that right interesting psychologically right because you yeah. can do that you can play those kind of like little mental gymnastic games happening inside you know okay his last big problem which is interesting and it take it, it kind of balances the whole thing out was if you have problems with these issues of self-esteem and um inferiority and all of these kinds of things one of the other things that can happen Adler says, and then Jung seems to agree with, is this idea that you can try to become dominating over other people. Mm. So that's the other coping mechanism with this somehow, which we all know is somehow true, right? We all have had experiences with the people in our lives. It's like almost like a stereotype, the bully who, you know, is just making up for their own lack of self-worth or something. I mean, that's a cliche almost, but like, if you get to the deep parts of this and you look at the number of people who may be acting in this way and ways that aren't as obviously cliche or something, you're like, yeah, it's a, it's a real problem. And it's another way of like when Adler and Jung are talking about this going through and trying to cover up for this lack of self-worth, right? What do you think? 
It reminds me, I, I, I'm sure I've seen it before, and I forget what movie it was, or movies or TV shows, you know, they'll have a kid who's bullying some other kid, you know, and then yeah. he'll, the camera will sort of like get into his face, and all of a sudden he'll, you'll see his eyes, the bully's eyes will be coming well, they'll start welling up and becoming really large, and he'll say, nobody loved me, <laughs> that's why I'm doing this. And then he'll go, shut the fuck, get out of here. I don't, you know, like, but they'll they'll, rec- yeah. they'll they'll make a joke out of it, or at least that was what I remember seeing. But they do acknowledge that, you know, like even in a even in a funny way, because the, the funniest stuff is is true, you know. Yeah, it's true. It's it's but, funny because it's true, right? But yeah. they're acknowledging that wound, the over the the sort of overcompensation of the feeling of, you know, smallness or insignificance via uh, dominance over another person or persons. My daughter and I have this like little obsession with this old TV show, Supernatural. It's just so weird. <laughs> and there was a whole episode just about this exact thing hmm. where um, there's it's usually like a mystery of the week kind of a deal, you know, Scooby-Doo kind of shit. <laughs> but the whole issue is who's the ghost that's causing all the problems in this high school? And they keep trying to figure out like it's a literal ghost, you know, so there's going to be some ghost and there's been like, they go back and they're trying to figure out what happened. And there's, you know, different kids. Like they think it's this one kid who committed suicide, but it turns out not to be his ghost. And they're trying to figure out who the ghost is. And mm. it turns out the ghost is the ghost of this bully. <laughs> and the whole time when they go talk to this kid's dad, the kid is like, the dad's like, oh yeah, he had all kinds of issues. And mm. his mother died and they tell the whole sob story. Not in a sob story sounds pejorative but i mean like a real this tragedy in the kid's life he never could really fully deal with it and he turned into a dick right. at school yeah but you know i think like if you stretch this a little bit bigger into like and again if we have listeners from other cultures it's interesting you know you know some of our overseas people but in american culture there's a lot of things things where people are trying to like kind of like slightly step on other people yeah there's a kind of a that competitiveness that kind of shows okay i'm going to go through and i'm going to like try to hide whatever my own feelings are of like uh lso low self-opinion by like climbing onto somebody else a little bit right Right? and i think others and then jung's point would be like well that's obviously psychologically unhealthy Mm. you know and you're trying to like prop yourself up by dominating others or comparing yourself with others and like okay i'll try to put myself a little above this one right so i feel better about myself it's just bad and i don't know to what extent i mean we both grew up in this culture. To what extent do you feel like you carry that kind of stuff in you? I don't know if I carry as much of it anymore. Maybe I felt that way at some times. But I mean, I think you do feel like you see it. Do you, oh, you self-reflect on that? What do you think of that whole thing? I think it's- How many, how many people do you think carry that in them? I don't know. I think there's definitely a former president who carries that with him. And so <laughs> therefore that resonates with a certain percentage of the population who feels similar, you know? Yeah. I think it's also a, a means of- yeah, overcoming inadequacies, overcoming lack of power, which we all have lack of power at different points, you know? What do you about think about that in terms of your men's group stuff and all that? Like, you know, if you, you've been in like athletic spaces, military spaces and all that, I mean, when you look at that in terms of male behavior, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think there's there's pros and there's cons to it, right? So being in those spaces allows you to, A, exert yourself, which and and physically so which is positive because you can a reach your limit which is great and then and then go to the second part the self esteem part and build a little bit more cuz you can have a new limit 
next time you're able to do it again, you know, and do it again, even, even through losses or even through tr- you know trials and tribulations, you're able to move it up and build and build and build and build and build. And that gives you that this sort of like confidence, this willpower, this things like this. That's the thing you're saying, like that will build the sense of like self-worth and yes. overcome some of those feelings by putting yes. challenges and see if you can meet them and stuff like that. But the downside is that you are also now in an arena where other people who might be have more higher physical physical prowess or some, you know, something they have something over you can extol this upon you, you know, and it it can be detrimental in that case. And so there could be, I mean, do you like, did you think those environments were toxic around this point or would you not go that far to use a word like this? That's, that's the question that's going to underline a lot of this. Well, we're talking, you could talk about toxic masculinity. You could talk about toxic, anything you don't have to talk about just masculinity. You can put that almost anything. Yeah. I think the toxicity element of that. I think it depends on who's leading it and, and how, how they allow that to occur, which is, almost in any and all situations. So if somebody who has this kind of sadistic part or some, we'll even say even not caring and they allow this to occur and they allow the, you know, subjugation of a couple people, people to be picked on, you know, or left out or whatever, then, then, then it can become toxic very quickly. But if you have a strong leader who is not, you know, who is willing to take criticism and, and, and say to no to people, or put people who are not so good into leadership roles when it's when when they're not fully functional, you know, or they can't, but you make them try, right? You give them the opportunity for success, whether someone succeeds or not, that's totally up to them and the situation, but at least they have the opportunity to do so. They may never have that again. And on the other side, the people who are always used to leading and used to making decisions and feeling like they're alpha and their ego is always right or whatever, you take them out of those roles and put them in a support role well, now they can learn actually from the bottom up and learn how to be better leaders. I guess this is more like specifically like leadership type training, but that's, mm-hmm. I feel like these situations build good leaders in general, if they're able to do that. But if you're, if it's led by someone who is again, not whole, or at least not as whole as one would like a leader to be, then you're going to have these situations where people are left out, picked on, and then you're going to get that bell-shaped curve of people who are, you know, really the cream of the crop that sort of run themselves, people who are at the bottom who just sort of fall off, and then everybody else in the middle that just sort of gets through the process and lives to fight another day. But there's not like a lot of deep transformation. So for me, in the way that I live, and I think you'll probably agree, and I'll, you know, certainly hear what you like to th- say about it. I prefer to have these opportunities for people as opposed to not, you know. I, I'm I'm always leery of power structures and people who are highly flawed in positions of authority over those who are looking up to them without a good, I guess, disciplinary system. So I'm talking about the Catholic Church or the Boy Scouts of America or, you know, these organizations that are supposed to help build people. And yet they end up allowing predators to enter into their ranks and then, you know, sort of defile the, the process along the way. Same thing in the military. There's total weirdos who are leading other people and whether they should be or should not be, I'm not sure. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but- It's um, <laughs> definitely an answer just like to, like a big part of it, right? Yeah. I guess like um, I'm intrinsically suspicious of all of those hierarchical organizations. I think there's probably something, and maybe that's like, maybe that is- uh, philosophically Buddhist. I can't say there aren't Buddhist organizations that aren't hierarchical. There definitely are. But like, for me, like, I don't like that idea. 
you know, I have like a little suspicion of all of that. Maybe because I'm suspicious of like the more dominating aspects of what's being pointed out here that when people do have problems of their own ego and their own self-esteem, they'll tend to try to like prop that up by, you know, putting themselves over other people or something like that. Yeah. So I get that. Like, you know, there's parts of this stuff that I don't want to totally trash everything. And there's parts of this thing to be good. Like my son is like temporarily the number one chess player in his age range in the state. <laughs> mm. Whether they'll stick or not, who knows? He's number 16 in the country currently, you know? But the thing that I keep trying to talk with him about is like, okay, you love this game. It's competitive and it's a little hard for me because I'm like, I'm not like a competitive person by my nature. It just isn't big on my radar of things. Right. Whatever the reasons are, just isn't my thing. And he's doing this very competitive thing. And then like, I'm, yeah, I worry partially about his own, like how he'll feel if he wins or he loses. Yeah, that bothers me a lot. And we actually, actually even talked about that in some episodes, I think. Yeah. But um, I'm also like always going, well, you're, what you were talking about, your object of competition is kind of like yourself and you getting better. Mm -hmm. That's the thing you're dealing with. It's not a question of whether or not you can be this dude or that dude or whatever. Though you can make that a challenge for yourself. And I understand that that can be helpful, right? You go, okay, this one's, this person's really good. Let me see if I can get myself to the level that I can kind of like be more equal with them or compete with them or something like that, right? And that does can create motivation and that's true, right? But uh, like the conversations were always, and I'm trying to understand how to help him do this because I want it to be psycho-spiritually meaningful for him. I don't want it to degenerate down to just some competitive thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going back to some of the Zen stuff. You were talking about Zen in the last few weeks too. So I'm going back to some of the Zen stuff where it's like samurai things. And I'm going back and I'm re-listening and audiobook things from these old Japanese great authors, you know, who are Zen masters and swords masters and they're talking about how you handle those aspects of things where you're trying to master an art form swordsmanship right chess or whatever it is where there's going to be competition of course in swordsmanship real competition because otherwise you could be dead right <laughs> or losing some limbs <laughs> so you know more heightened than chess but just how they talk about that idea when you're in something that intrinsically has a certain amount of like competition and conflict how do you handle that in a way that's psycho-spiritually beneficial and i think it has to be what you're talking about you have to imagine that you're actually competing against the art form not against another human or something right, right. yeah yeah all right so okay to me that's oddler he gets to the end and he says well you know the goal is to be what he calls socially useful meaning that you have connections and you're doing things that are positive for yourself and others which sounds a lot like bodhisattva things to me in a lot of ways so Okay, so these are the two big things for Jung. And then the last one is the cases that are more his cases where people feel cut off from the archetypal aspect of themselves. And he basically talks about people who are either under the thrall of some archetype or people who are so cut off from this world, their own inner world, that they just kind of like go through the external world in kind of a more of a rote way, but their lives feel kind of dry. Mm. You know, they don't feel the inspiration of what it means to tap into the deeper parts of themselves. So he sort of talks about patients who have sort of like an ennui or anime or something. They feel kind of uh, empty. And a lot of times, I think maybe what he experienced in his own life, too, and people who would otherwise seem like they should be happy people based on the external circumstances, but inside feel desperate, anxious, apathetically depressed. And he says it's a group of people then who need to tap into a deeper part of who they are and pull that part out of themselves. And then once you enter into that richer inner world, 
then that's the healing process mm. without becoming overly inflated or, you know, dominated by this, this space. I think that's a good idea too. I don't know how much you feel that in the practice that you're doing, but like, can you tap yeah. people to some inner part of themselves? Obviously we want to do that. So, yeah. I mean, somebody asked me, you know, to explain myself today or what I believe in or what I think in. And that was basically my answer. <laughs> that's good. Mm-hmm. That's Jung's funny because eventually you realize I kind of agree with this guy, <laughs> you know, even if you don't know the particular point that he made, you read it later on and you're like, oh yeah, that's, that seems pretty much right. <laughs> well, and then we were talking about that before we started recording, which is, you know, looking at the idea of, you know, somebody looking at the person who is making the statement and can you accept what they're saying as valid, regardless of who's saying it. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, you know, I never met this, you know, we study. Oh yeah. I hear what you're saying. Oh yeah. We were talking about that whole idea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we won't go that deep into it again, but you're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, we study, we study figures and we try and learn from them. Yeah. We listen to people, podcasters, YouTubers, authors, speakers, whatever, but like, we don't really know them, you know, you know, their work, but you could be tired or pissed off and show up in the clinic and be fantastic that day. Mm-hmm. What does it, what does that mean? It means you're good at be, uh, being a clinician, you know, a practitioner. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean that somebody necessarily knows whoever you are. So I, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm saying this because like I, I try and find the, the gems where the gems are to be found, you know? I think like in the, and what we're trying to do as far as our own little podcast endeavor is like present interesting things from interesting people, give our own two cents and takes on them, but we're trying to learn from others. Yeah. Yeah, we really are. And then, you know, trying to make it like hopefully, hopefully educational to other folks too, to say, Hey, this person's saying some interesting stuff. Here's what I got out of it. Maybe you can get some stuff out of this too. Exactly. While we're also kind of sharing our own experience. Yeah. All right, cool. So I wanted to go over that because then it applies to me like there's a certain way of talking about how people will be psychologically healthy. If you got issues with your own personal unconscious or your own collective unconscious, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. If you got issues of your own self-esteem and self-worth, you got a problem. And that's maybe, I, I was just thinking like, that's a good checklist for everybody maybe on some level to go through and say, okay, do I have a lot of repressed stuff about my past? Do I have a lot of repressed stuff about, you know, important parts of life, my assertion of myself, my expression of myself, sexuality, you know, do I have issues in these areas? Then maybe I got to be honest with myself and look at that. Do I have um, problems with my own sense of my own self-worth? You know, do I have problems of my own sense of my value, my own sense of my own self-opinion? And then do I have a connection to my own inner richer life? That's a good checklist, you know, that you can almost go through maybe for all of us. I wasn't thinking about that way. I don't, I haven't always thought of it that way, but I was thinking about this way for our podcast going, yeah, that's not a bad checklist of shit to look through. You know, if you can kind of like, I know self-test yourself around that. You know what I'm saying, Daniel? No, I think that's great. I mean, yeah, from a psychological perspective, that is, yeah. I mean, I don't know what else I would add. You know, I think then yeah, moving, you know, I probably would, the 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 pivot to the internal parts probably would you know if i'm thinking of this in a, in a way of like a questioning a patient you know i would pivot with the repression to the internal body yeah and that would start the conversation around physical 
sensations and back pain or sleep issues you know the, the right kind of physical stuff how is this yeah. impacting the body mm-hmm. yeah 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 all right but not a bad clinical checklist and i thought okay this is cool that's a good no, way to think that's about good. it and i almost want to do that for myself i want to keep an eye on that yeah Where no I, I agree you know i agree all right radical switch of gears but not that radical because it's the same dude uh we wanted to talk a little bit about synchronicity last well, Eric- idea we got to talk about yep um let's do something you want to like cut it here and then move on to the next subject so yeah eric i think that's i think that's a good place to stop actually mainly because if we put something good at the end of an episode then it might not get hurt so we put it as its own episode (laughs) and then people will get like they'll be like damn that was like 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 clinging on to every second (laughs) yeah our geniusness Listen, Eric, I, okay. I have the stats and that, that, that does not prove to be true. So, um, you know, better, to put, better, to, put the, better <laughs> to put the good stuff at the beginning. So anyways, with that being said, we, all the good stuff, folks. But that but, but we, but Eric, it, you gave a good, nice wrap up of, of this kind of like yeah. psychological health check, uh, which yeah, yeah. I think is, is is really useful for people and definitely good thinking about for myself included, you know, uh, yeah, that's so. right. So yeah, that was, that was good. That was good. Uh, so Eric, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, and to our audience, thank you. Uh, whether you, you know, this is your first episode or your 298th, I don't know where we're at, but we're getting close to 300. So that's interesting. Um, you know, give us a shout. Email, Instagram, you know, gin, email ginandtantra at gmail.com, Instagram ginandtantra on, uh, you know, YouTube videos, uh, or if you know us, you know, feel free to shoot us a text or a email or, you know, whatever. But hit us up. Thank you so much. I know this is choppier than it, than it normally is, but, you know, I don't give a shit. We're just doing our best. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought I went really, I thought I went really well. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, no yeah. reason to have bad self-esteem about it. Don't. No, hell no. My self-esteem is fucking awesome, actually. And I hope it is for everybody else, too. Uh, and if not, then, uh, you know. Feel free to send us a message and we'll be uh, we'll be happy to help you out if we can. So for Eric, this is Daniel. We'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. I want you to get together. I want you to get together. Put your hands together one time. I want you to get together. I want you to get together.